Well, if you just got here, it was good to be in the house of the Lord, right? I love to pray together. I loved watching the kids sing this morning. And you can't go wrong with Amazing Grace if you sing it to House of the Rising Sun, can you? I mean, that thing has been sung to more different uh, melodies than I think and tunes and uh, any song. But uh, it's been a blessing to be in the house of the Lord today. If you're just now joining us, uh, we appreciate that. Uh, clicking in online or whatever you do on your phone to be with us. And, uh, and we trust that God's going to uh, bless your time with us this morning also. If you live locally in the area, we look forward to, we look forward to you being here with us soon. And uh, for those of you at home, we've been praying for you this morning. Uh, Amy and, and uh, her illness and the Myers and theirs that uh, kept them out today. Um, we we uh, have you in our prayers and we look forward to when you can be back with us again. Uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, prayer here intermittently with this semi-series I've kind of been doing uh, that has to do with the times that we're living in and, and what we do to walk through this and then prepare for that. And I want us to look at Acts, the 12th chapter today, uh, the first verse through, uh, well, the whole chapter. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Um, and I just want to start by jumping into the passage, and uh, we'll go from there. Time is limited, so um, won't do a whole lot of introduction this morning. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now this happened during the feast of the unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod's intention, he intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. He knew that this was uh, not something the Jews wanted to deal with during the Passover celebration. Just that quick, things can change, can't they? You wake up one day and all of a sudden, uh, everything's different. For me, my magic age was 56. I could go all day way back to 27. It was, a, it was the first time I went to the doctor with a problem and uh, he couldn't give me any medicine for me that was going to fix it. And he said, guess what? You get to live with that the rest of your life. And I'm going, it's not the way it works. You know, I come here, you give me the pill, I go home and it's all better, right? And so officially that became my definition of old age. <laughs> old age is when you go to the doctor and he says, you just add that to your list, okay, of stuff you're going to die with, right? Uh, so I was an old man at 27. But the biggie for me was age 56. I don't know where yours is, where I um, went to the hospital. Uh, I had just gone to the doctor because I had a rough night, and I mean one rough night. And I went to the doctor. They put me in a wheelchair and rolled me over to the hospital and said, you got to go. And my life has been different ever since, you know. I'm not quite the man that I uh, was before age 56. And it happened over a long period of time, one night. Just like that, it can change, right? 
Just like that, a death affects your life in a catastrophic way. Just like that, a natural disaster wipes out folks in Kentucky and life is never going to be the same. Just like that, Herod decides that he's going to put James, the brother of John, to death. And just like that, something important changed for the church. Who were the three biggest pillars probably in that church? We can only speculate, but Peter, James, and John had to be biggies. We know that James, the brother of our Lord, became pretty prominent in the church in years that followed. But the church had lost something very significant here. They'd lost something in terms of an eyewitness. They'd lost something in terms of a disciple. So what do you do when that kind of loss comes? One of the commentaries I read suggested that the period of time between when Stephen was uh, stoned and when this event took place was eight years. If you read through the book of Acts, you, it's, it's just a few chapters over and that other event takes place. And we forget sometimes that there's a time frame that's going on here uh, that's more drawn out than what we see as the reader. And Herod in this story is not the same Herod that Jesus had talked with. And I use that loosely because Jesus didn't talk much, did he? Uh, he, <clears throat> he was pretty quiet in his response <clears throat> to Herod who was seeking a sign. Time has passed. This is a different Herod, okay? So as you're, as you're looking at this, things just sort of pop out at you. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. I could read this a hundred times, and every time I read through this, that little phrase just seems to leap off the, the page at me. Maybe it's because we've been trained to look for motivation in things. We're always asking anytime we see any kind of a crime on TV, why did they do that? What was going on? What's the purpose? What's the reason? What's the motivation? The motivation here was that he saw that it pleased the Jews. People-pleasing is a dangerous place to be in, isn't it? I think of Pontius Pilate. What was it that pushed him over the edge so that he would wash his hands of the matter and let him crucify Jesus? It was the power of the crowd. And very specifically, the power of the crowd that was addressing him saying that he didn't have the interest of Rome at heart. He wasn't concerned about what Caesar would have said. Herod seems here to be trying to deal with the Jewish nation, give them uh, some dog bones, so to, so to speak, to throw them some trinkets so that they'll live at peace with him and so that he can still execute in such a way to make the Roman government happy. He sort of treaded that balance, it seems like, pretty well, but he crossed a line here that he didn't give enough thought to. And that is that there is another tribunal that you and I are answerable to. And that's the tribunal at the throne of God. 
And Pontius Pilate missed this too, didn't he? His wife even came and warned him and said, you better not have anything to do with this guy. Because I've been warned about this in a dream. And he knew it was significant enough that he wanted to wash his hands from it. He wanted to, again, be faithful to Caesar. And when the people said, you know what? You're no friend of Caesar if you let this guy live who claims to be king of the Jews. And so at that point, he listened to the appeal of the crowd, the push of the crowd, seeing himself under the authority of Caesar and fearing that authority rather than fearing God. Okay, now just meditate on that for a minute. If you just contemplate that a minute, surely you can see some similarities in our country today to that situation. And as far as people pleasing and people pandering, we have the worst government in the world. If you had a king or a dictator, he's not worried about being popular. He's, he has other ways to stay in office. The only way you stay in office in this country is to be a people pleaser. Think about that for a minute. And if you don't like where things are going, then what you have to do is to move public opinion to your particular way so that now everybody's in your corner and then you can do what you want to do and still be a people pleaser. Isn't this a wonderful government we have? This thing is messed up from the very bottom up. The good part of it and the salvation, the salvation of this system is the fact that we have a few documents that were written that tell us how our government is to be laid out. It gives us some checks and balances in this so that we at least have a Supreme Court that is not going to be pandering to the people because once they get there, they serve for life, right? We at least have one check in all of this checks and balance system. Somebody with a little wisdom put this thing together and it guarantees us a few rights along the way which would be the things that our forefathers thought were urgent and important for us as citizens to have looking out for themselves and looking out for the generations to come. And you tear that document up, then what do we have? A zoo. That's what we have. We got nothing guiding us. And if you don't like the supremacy of one part of your system over this people-pleasing pandering that goes on, what do you do with that? You let things leak and then you march out in front of their houses to try to get them to be people-panderers too. And then if they won't, you add to the Supreme Court. We got a mess, people. Because nobody realizes there's a higher tribunal that they are answerable to than the Constitution of the United States. And that's God Almighty and his throne. And he has put in every single one of us a conscience that knows right from wrong. And people that tell you all this stuff about Males and females and boys and girls and can't tell the difference. They know the difference. They have hardened their conscience. That's what it is. And God is calling us 
to repentance. He's calling us to look at ourselves in light with that higher tribunal. And we need to be there to love people, to bring the gospel to them, to try to bring hope in the middle of this madness. And don't worry about where it's going to all fall out. Listen, God's got this. If you read the rest of this story, if you drop to the end of chapter 12, it says, Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea, and he stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. It's all through scripture, like I talked about last week. Governments use food to control people. God uses food to humble people. We have a climate crisis in our country. We don't have a climate crisis. We don't have a climate crisis in the world. What we have is God calling the world to repentance. He's always used this kind of stuff to call people to repentance. He says in the end, these things are going to increase. Increase. In intensity and in numbers. And if we know that and see that, that he's using this to call people to repentance, why are we missing this? Because we have an enemy that's trying to deceive us. I, I, I spoke to somebody several weeks back, and they were talking to me about the climate issue, and I stole Juneman's line. We don't have a climate problem, we have a sin problem. And the climate problem should cause us to look at the sin problem, but we do not, and it's in the book. So if you're missing all of the signs, how are you going to get back on track with God? And even the church is buying into it. God uses food to humble his people. He uses food to make people look up and realize and see their dependency on him. Are we going to have a food issue? I don't know. I'm not that kind of prophet. I'm just going by what the president says. He says we're going to have a food problem. And they're going to say it's Putin or it's the farmers or it's Bill Gates buying up the farmland or it's the Chinese doing whatever. It's God, people. And if we as God's people don't look at this and come to him and say, you know what, Lord? We need to humble ourselves before you. We need to see you as the God that you are. We need to fear the Lord and we need to worship you. We need to get our lives right with you and pursue that road that is righteousness and get on board with sharing the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it will be wasted again. God can handle those people that we're all worried about. Read the rest of the story. And on that appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Well, yeah, if God didn't like it the way this was going, if it was messing up his eternal plan, 
I guess we just have to say, wow, that's too bad, right? Boy, do you not see a sovereign God at work in this? He's got a plan. He's bringing it all to its appointed end. It's going to happen the way he wants it to happen. We're worried about things that God's completely in control of. Josephus, in his writings, said it took the king five days to die after this event, and he said it was very painful for him. We're worried about the wrong stuff. By aiding and abetting the Jews, he was standing against the plans and the purposes of God. And anytime we stand in that place, we're in a dangerous position. The last verse, next to the last verse in this chapter says, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. God's going to work his plan. Are we going to work in that plan? Are we going to fight all of these little peripheral battles? Are we going to see the things that are happening in the world for what they really are from the, from the standpoint of God's kingdom and do what we need to do in terms of unity and repentance and, and just getting on board with what God's doing? Are we going to fight the peripherals? No plan will prevail against the Lord. Don't be too concerned about governments. They come and go just like angels and worms. Everything's at God's disposal, is it not? So Peter was kept in prison, it says in verse 5. But the church was earnestly in Pray, earnestly praying to God for him. And the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping. Let me finish it. I just wanted you to get that. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and centuries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared Light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, Peter. And then Peter's chains fell off of his wrist. The church was praying and Peter was sleeping. As I read this, I thought, you know, this isn't the first prayer meeting that Peter slept through, is it? I remember in the garden, he didn't have a clue what was laying ahead and he was tired. And so he went to sleep. I kept wondering if maybe if that was the same thing happening. He didn't have a clue what tomorrow was going to hold. And uh, he was tired, so he went to sleep. Maybe. He had to know James, though, had been put to death with the sword. He's seen what happened or heard of at least what happened to Stephen. He'd been right there when they crucified the Lord and the Lord had said, hey, if they've done this to me, they're going to do that to you. Maybe he had just come to a place where he'd made peace with his situation. That his expectation was that he was going to go the way of James, that he was going to go, away this, go the way of Stephen, that he was going to go the way of Jesus. Maybe. 
I've seen people who are that at peace with death that they could go to sleep. And then I've seen others who were not at peace at all, haven't you? And death was a struggle and a turmoil for them. So where do we land in all of this? I think that we want to be settled. We want to be determined in our faith. But I think it is absolutely amazing that whatever was going on, that Peter in the midst of all of that was just able to sleep. If you were facing trial tomorrow, and going to be on the trial because you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you knew that the last guy who'd had a trial for the same thing ended up put to death by the sword, what would you be doing that night before your trial? What would you be thinking? I don't know, just speculating. I think I'd probably be up all night worrying about whether or not they had enough evidence to convict me as a follower of Jesus, right? I mean, if the right people gave testimony, I could look like a anything but a follower of Jesus, you know. I got lots of enemies out there who would love to tell you I'm anything but that, you know. Uh, I would hope they don't show up at the trial. I would hope they'd be concerned enough about me dying. They would stay away so the few good stories could be told, right? I mean, you, you didn't have that thought. You just knew you were going to be a goner, right? Yeah, well, what would you be thinking? Would you be worried about life itself? I think it's an incredible testimony to who Peter was. He was settled in this moment, very settled in his faith, in his position, in his place with the Lord. At least it looks like that to me. The church, however, was not so settled, were they? And man, this is what I really want us to get today. And I do not know how to, to get you to feel what's going on in the passion, uh, uh, passion of this narrative. There is an emotion here that we need to capture. Go back to that event that changed your life. I go back to age 56 as a life-changing event for me. And I, I look at that, it had grave consequences for me. It was a serious moment. Some serious recovery had to be given to it. Some serious thought had to be given to it. Some serious prayer had to be given to it, right? This was a moment of an extreme intensity for the church. And the inner circle of Jesus is being broken up. The three musketeers are going down. James has already gone. Peter's fixing to be next. Okay, so they killed Mr. Croy last week. I'm on trial this week. And we don't know where Mike is. He's John hanging out there somewhere, right? What would that do to this church? You think maybe we might have a spontaneous prayer meeting before they killed me? That we might come down and just, you know, have a real, a real prayer meeting? I can see it now. Croy's dead. The preacher's fixing to die. It sure looks that way. Let's meet at the church at 7 o'clock. We'll have some of that wonderful hazelnut coffee. We're going to bring those coconut macaroons, you know. Uh, we'll order out and have somebody, uh, you know, come in and, and maybe cater the thing. 
And we're going to give you a free book when you come so that you can be sure to be there for that prayer meeting. And, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, you can, are you getting what I'm saying? We'll even bring in a worship team and sing a few songs so that you don't have to pray the whole time. That would be too cumbersome. When have we ever been so serious about prayer that a need arose in our lives as a church with such immediacy that it caused us spontaneously to become this kind of a people in prayer. Have any of you ever been to an all-night prayer meeting? Three of you. I have. It was a one where you come to and you tag team. Okay, I've got from 10 till 1, tag, you're up, Harold. You got from 1 to 2, tag, you're up, Asa. You got from 2 to 4, we prayed all night. That's what these people did. And in between, they ate coconut macarons and, and they drank coffee. Are, are you getting what I'm saying? I'm saying there is a quantum leap between what the church of Jesus Christ in this country is and does and experiences versus what this church in Acts was experiencing. And we have yet to step into this kind of urgency in our prayer life. I've never seen this in my lifetime, ever. And I don't know the situation about the three of you who raised your hand that have been to an all-night prayer meeting. Maybe yours was like mine. I don't know. Maybe it was something that happened spontaneously because of, of something that grabbed the hearts of enough people that they were there that they prayed all night. Maybe that was what happened. And God bless you if that happened. So now my question is, what's it going to take for the church of Jesus Christ to begin to pray like the people in Acts prayed? We set a prayer goal for our church of 30 hours a week. And so far, we haven't hit that. Now, I know we're small. Why not? Because something's not urgent to us. Either that or we just don't care to fill out the cards. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted us to do this and to count this. Because I wanted to, us to think about combining these thoughts this morning. Where is it that God would call us to repentance? Listen, climate change is not just so the world will get it, but so that we'll get it. Hunger's not just so the world will get it, it's so we'll get it. So that we'll look at our lives and say, God, where do I need to line up better with you? And when you set a goal, all you're doing is saying, Lord, this is the direction I want to go. As I said earlier in the Bible study, I don't set a goal to eat more ice cream. It's not a direction I want to go. It is a goal I could keep. Yeah. And so we set a goal for us as a church to move in this direction. But I don't want it to just be doing things to reach a number. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm asking myself, what is it? 
that would cause the church in America to pray with this kind of urgency because we haven't gotten there yet. And I don't see it anywhere in America. Maybe it's happening down in the south, but it's not in the northwest. Show me a church that feels this kind of urgency. Urgency leads us to get involved in the political arena or the political realm and to fuss and complain about all of that. Urgency leads us to, do, to plan a jailbreak so that we can get Peter out. What's it going to take? Do you think maybe God is calling his people to this? Am I just crazy? Or does he want us to be this urgent in prayer? And if this is the case, what would cause us to do this? Obviously not the lostness of our fellow man, because it hasn't so far. Not the lostness of our friends, not the lostness of those in our family, because it hasn't yet. I've not been to a prayer meeting yet where we all got together because we were bleeding and crying and dying inside because of lost people in our family who were going to hell and just said, I'm going to pray all night. And everybody else came down and said, I got them too. I'm going to pray with you. <coughs> Am I being unfair? I mean, I know we pray for those people we are concerned about. Lori and I pray for them every time we pray. Am I being unfair? I, I don't know. But I'm saying there was a real urgency in this church that led them to their knees. Peter was settled. He was sleeping. They were not. They were in an all-night prayer meeting. Okay, now, here, play a game with me again. Let me read you a passage of Scripture, and then I want to make a couple more comments. I'll be quiet. Okay. Then the angel said to him, Peter, put on your clothes and your sandals. And so he did. He wrapped the cloak around him and he followed him. And the angel told him, Peter, follow. Uh, and Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was just seeing a vision. They passed the first, the second guard, came to the iron gate leading to the city. He opened it, poof, right in front of them. They went through it. He walked down the length of one street and the angel was gone. And Peter said, what am I doing out here? And he realized what had happened. He came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the clutches of Herod and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Oh, Jews were sleeping that night. Oh, we're going to get Peter tomorrow. Herod's on our side. And the angel of the Lord said, no, I don't think so. And God's people were praying. And what the enemies of God anticipated did not happen. You, you know, I don't know about all of this, but I know what I read in commentaries. And, and uh, I, I just want to share some stuff with you that I think adds to the story. So that's what I'm going to do. So the way, the way that, that they did that uh, most often was that if you were a, prisoned, a prisoner chained between two guards, it looked like this. Harold, which is your strong arm that you would fight with? Then I would take Harold's right arm, I would chain it to my left arm so that I could get to my sword and do him damage if he did anything. 
And that is the way that they would transport prisoners and so forth is what I heard. And that is the red. And that is the way that they would sit between two prisoners. They would put one hand like that and that they were really bad guys. They'd put one on the other one and that guy would sit on the other side of him. So between two prisoners meant Harold was chained between two of us and we were ready to kill him. Because I, I don't know about you, but I think of a dungeon where he's up like this and he's chained to a wall and these guys are sleeping over in the corner. Baby, they were right there. And the angel walks in and tells him what to do and they don't wake up. And then the chains fall off and they don't wake up. And he said, put your coat on and let's get out of here. And he does and he follows him. Now, folks, that's a, that's a first class miracle, okay? I mean, that just gets better, right? Okay, so you're praying and you know this is what's going on. What is your anticipation? The anticipation of those Jews was that they're going to get Peter in the morning. The anticipation of Herod, we're going to get Peter in the morning. You're at the prayer meeting. What's your anticipation? What are you anticipating? Can't you see it? First prayer offered up. God bless Peter. Not a bad prayer. Maybe the second one with this. God help Peter to make better choices so he doesn't end up like this again. Lord, be with Peter. Give him a good night's rest. He has a big day tomorrow. Maybe he got a little more mature than that. Lord, let the trial go favorably for Peter and set him free. Now that reflects a bit of theology, doesn't it? What am I anticipating? Lord... If they kill Peter tomorrow and this cup can't pass from him, this is what you have for him. Give him a measure of your grace to meet this occasion that he might bring glory to your name. Not a bad prayer. What's your anticipation? Lord, give Peter patient endurance and wisdom to stand in this coming trial, faithful to the end. What are you anticipating? How about this one? Lord, grant Peter the words to say that hearts could be convicted and lives could be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit tomorrow. What would be your anticipation? Lord, let Peter be a powerful witness to those guards tonight. Those are not bad prayers. But what are they anticipating? So what would you have prayed that night for Peter? You can say whatever you want, but none of you would have prayed for what happened. Because I don't believe you. Lord, send your angel. Keep them guards asleep. Let them chains fall off of Peter. Woo, let him walk through those guards. All four sets of them. Open that gates of that prison, walk him down the street and send him over here, Lord. Yeah! Who prayed that prayer? And we wonder why these people were astonished when Peter showed up at the door. You would have been too. Because God does immeasurably more than we can even imagine. God let him die well. He ain't done yet. How about I send him over to encourage your prayer meeting? Is this not amazing? When God's people got together, they were earnest in prayer. And I don't know what they prayed that night. They got way more than I believe 
they were even capable of imagining. Why else would scripture say, as it does here, that when he showed up, what happens? Rhoda goes to the door, hears Peter's voice, gets so excited, she goes back and tells him. Peter's at the door and they say, you're out of your mind. Peter's sitting between two guards with four sets of four guarding him with gates and chains and there's no way. No, Peter's at the door, I'm telling you. He's still knocking. Peter's at the door. That's what scripture said. He just kept knocking. They're having this conversation inside. And finally, some great theologian said, well, it must be his angel. Yeah, most angels knock before they enter, right? I mean, these people had no expectation of this. Are you with me? They open the door. There stands Peter. And they get so excited. It's the middle of the night. He has to tell them to hush because they're going to wake up the neighbors. And then he tells them what's going on. They were astonished at how God answered prayer. What if the people of God found something that drew them to prayer with the same earnestness that we as the people of God would be compelled to pray like they prayed? Could it possibly be that we'd wake up in the morning astonished at what God is doing in the life of the church and at what God is doing in America? Is it possible? We say we care. We say it's urgent. And what do we do? We buy more food. We buy more ammo. We vote a particular way. We get on this bandwagon, whatever it is. I'm not saying don't do whatever your thing is. I'm just saying we might be off track a little. What would it take? We know our Christian brothers and sisters are dying all over the world. We know we left missionaries in Afghanistan that probably aren't alive now. When was the last time you prayed for those people? Out of sight, out of mind. We lose things so quickly, don't we? And we're one as a body of Christ. We should be standing with those people. We should be standing up for the people who are lost that don't know Jesus Christ. And when you mention the name of Jesus, they turn and run. They won't even listen to a word about the gospel. You pick up a Bible and they seem to to cower and run in fear. Our world needs Jesus. He's the answer to the sin problem that's out there. He is where life is and the only place that life is in life abundant. And we wonder why they're missing it when we're missing it. What's it going to take? I don't know. But I'm telling you, we're not there yet. So hang on. We got a ride in front of us. God's going to do in his church what he wants to. To create a remnant. And to move powerfully. Now listen to me. I don't want to miss that prayer meeting. And neither do you.
Let's be alert because it's coming. I would love to create it for us today, but I can't. But we can get serious about prayer and we can get serious about staying in God's word. And we have a greater chance of not missing it when it comes. I wouldn't trade these times for anything. We just have to step up to the plate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. I praise you. And I'm in awe at the way you work. And time and time again, you show up in ways that astound us. And Lord, every one of us has prayers that we've prayed that you have answered. And you, you surprised us. You astounded us, Lord. And we thought, no way. And it was yes way. You care about details in such a way that we could give story after story. And yet we do not seem to connect the dots in a fashion that leads us to the urgency of the things of the kingdom of God that would drive us to our knees collectively as your people so that we might see and experience more of your kingdom come, your will being done right here on earth as it is in heaven. It's happening all around us and we miss it, Lord. You're doing something. You have a plan. Lord, let us join you in that, please. Let us not miss the prayer meeting and all that follows. For the glory of your kingdom, for the redemption of mankind.